Section 1 of the Final Report from the National Commission on the BP Deepwater Horizon Oil Spill and Offshore Drilling. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Maria Casper. Final Report from the National Commission on the BP Deepwater Horizon Oil Spill and Offshore Drilling. Chapter 1. The Deepwater Horizon, the Macondo Well, and Sudden Death on the Gulf of Mexico. Part 1. At 5.45 a.m. on Tuesday, April 20, 2010, a Halliburton Company cementing engineer sent an email from the rig Deepwater Horizon in the Gulf of Mexico off the Louisiana coast to his colleague in Houston. He had good news. We have completed the job, and it went well. Outside in the Gulf it was still dark. Beyond the glare of the floodlights on the gargantuan rig, the four decks of which towered above the blue-green water, on four huge white columns, all floating on massive pontoons. The oil derrick rose over twenty stories above the top deck. Up on the bridge on the main deck, two officers monitored the satellite-guided dynamic positioning system, controlling thrusters so powerful that they could keep the 33,000-ton deepwater horizon centered over a well even in high seas. The rig's industrial hum and loud mechanical noises punctuated the sea air as a slight breeze blew in off the water. The crew worked on the well-bore, aiming always to keep the pressure inside the well, balancing the force exerted by the surrounding seabed. By the time the Halliburton engineer had arrived at the rig, four days earlier, to help cement in the two-and-a-half-mile-deep Macondo well, some crew members had dubbed it the well from hell. Macondo was not the first well to earn that nickname. Like many deep-water wells, it had proved complicated and challenging. As they drilled, the engineers had to modify plans in response to their increasing knowledge of the precise features of the geologic formations thousands of feet below. Deep-water drilling is an unavoidably tough, demanding job, requiring tremendous engineering expertise. BP drilling engineer Brian Morell who had designed the Macondo well with other BP engineers, including Mark Hafel, was also on board to observe the final stages of work at the well. In an April 14th email, Morell had lamented to his colleagues, This has been a nightmare well, which has everyone all over the place. BP and its corporate partners on the well, Anadarko Petroleum and Moex USA, had, according to government reports, budgeted $96.2 million and 51 days of work to drill the Macondo well in Mississippi Canyon Block 252. They discovered a large reservoir of oil and gas, but drilling had been challenging. As of April 20th, BP and the Macondo well were almost six weeks behind schedule, and more than $58 million over budget. 
the deep-water horizon was not originally meant to drill macondo another giant rig the marianas had initiated work on the well the previous october drilling had reached more than nine thousand feet below the ocean surface four thousand feet below the seabed with another nine thousand feet to go to pay zone the oil and gas reservoir when hurricane ida so battered the rig on november ninth that it had to be towed in for repair both marianas and deepwater horizon were semi-submersible rigs owned by transocean founded in louisiana in nineteen nineteen as danziger oil and refining company and now the world's largest contractor of offshore drilling rigs in two thousand nine transocean's global fleet produced revenues of eleven point six billion dollars transocean had consolidated its dominant position in the industry in november two thousand seven by merging with rival global santa fe deepwater horizon built for three hundred and fifty million dollars was seen as the outstanding rig in transocean's fleet leasing its services reportedly cost as much as one million dollars per day since deepwater horizon's two thousand one maiden voyage to the gulf it had been under contract to london-based bp formerly known as british petroleum by twenty ten after numerous acquisitions bp had become the world's fourth largest corporation based on revenue producing more than four million barrels of oil daily from thirty countries note a barrel equals forty-two gallons end note ten percent of bp's output came from the gulf of mexico where bp america headquartered in houston was the largest producer but bp had a tarnished reputation for safety among other bp accidents fifteen workers died in a two thousand five explosion at its texas city texas refinery in two thousand six there was a major oil spill from a badly corroded bp pipeline in alaska deepwater horizon had arrived at the macondo lease site on january thirty first at two fifteen p m it was fifty five degrees chilly and clear the night of a full moon about one hundred and twenty six people were aboard approximately eighty transocean employees a few bp men cafeteria and laundry workers and a changing group of workers contracted for specialized jobs depending on the status of the well these might include halliburton cementers mud loggers from sperry sun a halliburton subsidiary mud engineers from m i Sueco, a subsidiary of schlumberger an international oil field services provider remotely operated vehicle technicians from oceaneering or tank cleaners and technicians from the ocs group the offices and living quarters were on the two bottom decks of the rig helicopters flew in and out regularly with workers and supplies landing on the top-deck helipad and service ships made regular visits at its new macondo assignment deepwater horizon floated in four thousand nine hundred and ninety two feet of water 
just beyond the gentle slope of the continental shelf in the mississippi canyon the seabed far below was near freezing visible to the crew only via cameras mounted on the rig's subsea remotely operated vehicle another two and a half miles below the seabed was the prize bp sought a large reservoir of oil and gas from the middle miocene era trapped in a porous rock formation at temperatures exceeding two hundred degrees these deep-water hydrocarbon fields buried far below the seabed not just in the gulf but in other oil-rich zones around the world too were the brave new oil frontier the size of some deep-water fields was so huge that the oil industry had nicknamed those with a billion barrels or more elephants drilling for oil had always been hard dirty dangerous work combining heavy machinery and volatile hydrocarbons extracted at high pressures since two thousand one the gulf of mexico workforce thirty five thousand people working on ninety big drilling rigs and three thousand five hundred production platforms had suffered one thousand five hundred and fifty injuries sixty deaths and nine hundred and forty eight fires and explosions the rig never slept most workers on deepwater horizon from bp's top company man down to the roustabouts put in a twelve-hour night or day shift working three straight weeks on and then having three weeks off rig workers made good money for the dangerous work and long stints away from home and family top rig and management jobs paid well into six figures on the morning of april twentieth robert calusa was bp's day shift company man on the deepwater horizon on board for the first time he was serving for four days as a relief man for ronald sepulvado a veteran well site leader on the rig sepulvado had flown back to shore april sixteenth for a required well control class during the rig's daily seven thirty a m operations conference call to bp in houston engineer morell discussed the good news that the final cement job at the bottom of the macondo well had gone fine to ensure the job did not have problems a three-man schlumberger team was scheduled to fly out to the rig later that day able to perform a suite of tests to examine the well's new bottom cement seal according to the bp team's plan if the cementing went smoothly as it had they could skip schlumberger's cement evaluation generally the completion rig would perform this test when it reopened the well to produce the oil the exploratory drilling had discovered the decision was made to send the schlumberger team home on the eleven a m helicopter thus saving time and the one hundred and twenty eight thousand dollar fee as b p wells team leader john guide noted everyone involved with the job on the rig site was completely satisfied with the cementing job at eight fifty two a m morell emailed the houston office to reiterate just wanted to let everyone know the cement job went well pressures stayed low but we had full returns on the entire job we should be coming out of the hole well shortly at ten fourteen a m 
David Sims, BP's new drilling operations manager in charge of Macondo, emailed to say, great job, guys. The rest of the day would be devoted to a series of further tests on the well, positive and negative pressure tests, in preparation for temporary abandonment. Note. Temporary abandonment describes the process after successful exploration for securing the well until the production platform can be brought in for the purpose of extracting the oil and gas from the reservoir. End note. During the positive pressure test, the drill crew would increase the pressure inside the steel casing and seal assembly to be sure they were intact. The negative pressure test, by contrast, would reduce the pressure inside the well in order to simulate its state after the deep water horizon had packed up and moved on. If pressure increased inside the well during the negative pressure test, or if fluids flowed up from the well, that would indicate a well integrity problem, a leak of fluids into the well. Such a leak would be a worrisome sign that somewhere the casing and cement had been breached, in which case remedial work would be needed to re-establish the well's integrity. At 10.43 a.m., Morell, about to leave the rig on the helicopter with the Schlumberger team, sent a short email laying out his plan for conducting the day's tests of the well's integrity and subsequent temporary abandonment procedures. Few had seen the plan's details when the rig supervisors and members of the drill team gathered for the rig's daily 11 a.m. pre-tour meeting in the cinema room. Basically, we go over what's going to be taking place for today on the rig and the drill floor, said Douglas Brown, chief mechanic. During the rig meeting, the crew on the drill floor was conducting the Macondo Wells positive pressure test. The positive pressure test on the casing was reassuring, a success. There was reason for the mood on the rig to be upbeat. Ross Skidmore, a subsea engineer, explained, when you run the last string of casing and you've got it cemented, it's landed out and a test was done on it, you say, this job, we're at the end of it. We're going to be okay. At noon, the drill crew began to run drill pipe into the well, in preparation for the negative pressure test later that evening. By now it was a sunny afternoon. Transocean's top men on the rig, Jimmy Harrell and Captain Kurt Kuchta, were standing together near the helipad, watching a helicopter gently land. Kuchta had come in from New Orleans just that morning to begin his three-week hitch. Harold was the top transocean man on the rig, when, as now, the well was latched up. Captain Kuchta, who had served on the Deepwater Horizon since June 2008, was in command when the vessel was unlatched, and thus once again a maritime vessel. The helicopter landed, the doors opened, and four Houston executives stepped out to begin their 24-hour management visibility tour. Harrell and Kuchta greeted the VIPs. Two were from Transocean, Buddy Trehan, Vice President and Operations Manager for Assets, and Don Winslow, a one-time assistant driller who had worked his way up to Operations Manager. 
BP's representatives were David Sims, the new drilling operations manager, he had sent the congratulatory email about the cement just that morning, and Pat O'Brien, vice president for drilling and completions, Gulf of Mexico deep water. At about 4 p.m., Harold began his escorted tour of the Deepwater Horizon for the VIPs. He was joined by Chief Engineer Steve Bertone, on board since 2003, and Senior Tool Pusher Randy Ezel, another top man on the rig. Like Harold, Ezel was an offshore veteran. He had worked for 23 years with Transocean, and was now the senior man in charge of the drilling floor. He had been on the rig for years. If any people knew this rig, they were Harrell, Bertone, and Ezell. They showed the VIPs around. At 5 p.m., the rig crew, including tool pusher Wyman Wheeler, began the negative pressure test. After bleeding pressure from the well, the crew would close it off to check whether the pressure within the drill pipe would remain steady but the pressure repeatedly built back up. As the crew conducted the test, the drill shack grew crowded. The night crew began arriving to relieve the day shift, and Harold brought the VIPs through as part of their tour. There were quite a few people in there, said Transocean's Winslow. I tapped Dewey Rivette on the shoulder. He was the driller master. I said, hey, how's it going, Dewey? You got everything under control here? and he said, yes, sir. And there seemed to be a discussion going on about some pressure or a negative test. And I said to Jimmy, Harold, and Randy Ezell, looks like they're having a discussion here. Maybe you could give them some assistance. And they happily agreed to that. Bertone took over the tour, wandering on to look at the moon pool down toward the pontoons and the thrusters, the two shifts continued to discuss how to proceed. It was about 6 p.m. Jason Anderson, a tool pusher, turned to Ezell and said, Why don't you go eat? Ezell had originally planned to attend a meeting with the VIPs at 7 p.m. He replied, I can go eat and come back. Anderson was from Bay City, Texas, and had been on the rig since it was built. He was highly respected as a man who understood the finer points of deep-water well control. This was his final shift on the deep-water horizon. He had been promoted to teaching in Transocean's well control school, and he was scheduled to fly out the next day. He told Ezell, "'Man, you ain't got to do that. I've got this. Don't worry about it. If I have any problems at all with this test, I'll give you a call.' I knew Jason well, said Ezell. I've worked with him for all those years, eight or nine years. He was just like a brother. So I had no doubt that if he had any indication of any problem or difficulty at all, he would have called me. So I went ahead and ate. I did attend the meeting with the dignitaries. Wheeler was convinced that something wasn't right, recalled Christopher Pleasant, a subsea supervisor. Wheeler couldn't believe the explanations he was hearing, but his shift was up. Don Vidrine, the company man coming on the evening shift, eventually said that another negative test had to be done. This time the crew members were able to get the pressure down to zero on a different pipe, the kill line, 
but still not for the drill pipe, which continued to show elevated pressure. According to BP witnesses, Anderson said he had seen this before, and explained away the anomalous reading as the bladder effect. Whether for this reason or another, the men in the shack determined that no flow from the open kill line equaled a successful negative pressure test. Note. The precise content of this particular conversation is disputed, and is considered more fully in Chapter 4. End note. It was time to get on with the rest of the temporary abandonment process. Calusa, his shift over, headed off duty. At 7 p.m., after dinner, the VIPs had gathered in the third-floor conference room with the rig's leadership. According to BP's Patrick O'Brien, the Deepwater Horizon was the best-performing rig that we had in our fleet and in the Gulf of Mexico, and I believe it was one of the top-performing rigs in all the BP floater fleets from the standpoint of safety and drilling performance. O'Brien, at his new job just four months, was on board in part to learn what made the rig such a standout. Despite all the crew's troubles with this latest well, they had not had a single lost time incident in seven years of drilling. The Transocean managers discussed with their BP counterparts the backlog of rig maintenance. A September 2009 BP safety audit had produced a 30-page list of 390 items requiring 3,545 man-hours of work. The managers reviewed upcoming maintenance schedules and discussed efforts to reduce dropped objects and personal injuries. On a rig with cranes, multiple decks, and complicated heavy machinery, errant objects could be deadly. Around 9 p.m., Transocean's Winslow proposed that they all go visit the bridge, which had not been part of their earlier tour. According to David Sims, the bridge was kind of an impressive place if you hadn't been there. Lots of screens, lots of technology. The four men walked outside. The gulf air was warm, and the water calm as glass. Beyond the glare of the rig's lights, the night sky glimmered with stars. After concluding that the negative pressure test was successful, the drilling crew prepared to set a cement plug deep in the well, 3,000 feet below the top of the well. They reopened the blowout preventer and began pumping seawater down the drill pipe to displace the mud and spacer from the riser, the pipe that connected the rig to the well assembly on the seafloor below. Note. As described more fully in Chapter 4, a spacer is a liquid that separates drilling mud used in the drilling operations from the seawater that is pumped in to displace the mud once drilling is complete. End note. When the spacer appeared up at the surface, they stopped pumping because the fluid had to be tested to make sure it was clean enough to dump it in the gulf, now that it had journeyed down into the well and back. By 9.15 p.m., the crew began discharging the spacer overboard. Inside the bridge, Captain Kuchta welcomed visitors Sims, O'Brien, Trehan, and Winslow. The two dynamic positioning officers, Yancey Keplinger and Andrea Flatus, were also on the bridge. 
keplinger was giving the visitors a tour of the bridge while flatus was at the desk station the officers explained how the rig's thrusters kept the deep-water horizon in place above the well showed off the radars and current meters and offered to let the visiting bp men try their hands at the rig's dynamic positioning video simulator winslow watched as the crew programmed in seventy knot winds and thirty-foot seas and hypothetically put two of the rig's six thrusters out of commission then they put the simulator into manual mode and let sims work the hand controls to maintain the rig's location keplinger was advising about how much thrust to use winslow decided it was a good moment to go grab a quick cup of coffee and a smoke he walked down to the rig's smoking area poured some coffee and lit his cigarette senior tool-pusher randy azell left the evening meeting with bp feeling pleased at their praise on how good a job we had done how proud they were of the rig he stopped in at the galley to get a beverage before continuing to his office at nine twenty he called anderson up on the rig floor and asked how did your negative test go anderson it went good we bled it off we watched it for thirty minutes and we had no flow Ezel, what about your displacement how's it going anderson it's going fine it won't be much longer and we ought to have our spacer back Ezel, do you need any help from me anderson no man i've got this go to bed i've got it Ezel concluded okay Ezel walked to his cabin he had worked with anderson since the rig came from the shipyard he had complete confidence in him jason was very acute on what he did he probably had more experience as far as shutting in for kicks than any individual on the deep water horizon so Ezel prepared for bed called his wife and then turned off the lights to watch a bit of tv before going to sleep up on the bridge o'brien was taking his turn on the simulator sims had stepped to the opposite side of the bridge when he felt a distinct high-frequency vibration captain kuchta looked up and remarked what's that he strode to the port side door and opened it outside o'brien could see the supply vessel bankston glistening with what looked like drilling mud the captain shut the door and told everybody to stay inside. Then there began a hissing noise. BP's Vidrine was headed back to his office to do paperwork. He had been there about ten to fifteen minutes when the phone rang. It was Anderson, who reported they were getting mud back and were diverting to the gas buster. Vidrine grabbed his hard hat and started for the drill floor by the time he got outside there was mud and seawater blowing everywhere there was a mud film on the deck i decided not to continue and came back across down in azel's cabin he was still watching tv when his phone rang it was assistant driller steve curtis calling also from the rig floor we have a situation the well is blown out we have mud going to the crown Azel was horrified. Do you all have it shut in? Curtis. Jason is shutting it in now. Randy, we need your help. Azel. 
Steve, I'll be, I'll be right there. He put on his coveralls, pulled his socks on, and opened the door to go across the hall to his office for his boots and hard hat. Once in the hall, a tremendous explosion blew me probably twenty feet against a bulkhead, against the wall in that office, and I remember then that the lights went out, power went out, I could hear everything deathly calm. Up on the main deck, gantry crane operator Micah Sandell was working with the roustabouts. I seen mud shooting all the way up to the derrick, then it just quit. I took a deep breath, thinking that, oh, they got it under control. Then, all of a sudden, the mud started coming out of the degasser, so strong and so loud, that it just filled up the whole back deck with a gassy smoke. Loud enough, it's like taking an air hose and sticking it in your ear. Then something exploded. That started the first fire, on the starboard side of the derrick. Sandell jumped up and turned off the crane cab's air conditioner, worried that the gas would come in and about that time everything in the back just exploded at one time. It knocked me to the back of the cab. I fell to the floor, put my hands over my head, and I just said, no, God, no, because I thought that was it. Then the flames pulled back from his crane and began to shoot straight up, roaring up and over the twenty-story derrick. Down in the engine control room, Chief Mechanic Douglas Brown, an Army veteran employed by Transocean, was filling out the nightly log and equipment hours. He had spent the day fixing a saltwater pipe in one of the pontoons. First he noticed an extremely loud air leak sound, then a gas alarm sounded, followed by more and more alarms wailing. In the midst of the noise, Brown noticed someone over the radio. I heard the captain or chief mate, I'm not sure who, make an announcement to the standby boat, the Bankston, saying we were in a well-control situation. The vessel was ordered to back off to five hundred meters. Now Brown could hear the rig's engines revving. I heard them revving up, higher and higher and higher. Next I was expecting the engine trips to take over. That did not happen. After that, the power went out. Seconds later, an explosion ripped through the pitch-black control room, hurtling him against the control panel, blasting away the floor. Brown fell through into a subfloor full of cable trays and wires. A second huge explosion roared through, collapsing the ceiling on him. All around in the dark he could hear people screaming and crying for help. Dazed and buried in debris, he pulled himself out of the subfloor hole. In front of him appeared Mike Williams, chief electronic technician, blood pouring from a wound on his forehead, crawling over the rubble, screaming that he had to get out. End of Section 1